Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the show, we'll hear why members of the Legislature's Joint Appropriations Committee say they believe still more budget cuts are needed. You know, our individuals with developmental disabilities, with behavioral health, suicide prevention, all of those kinds of programs are being cut. And we'll learn how the Northern Arapaho are trying to make sure they don't get left out of the grisly delisting the way the Standing Rock Sioux did on the pipeline. They're thinking that, oh, we can override the tribes, so and what they have to say is it not important. And we'll hear about the strange things that started happening when a UW student was commissioned to paint the sinking of the USS Arizona. Then you'd start smelling like smoke and burning oil and gasoline and ocean, and then it'd just all go away and everything be normal. Those stories and more are all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. It's been a rough year for state officials. A greater-than-expected revenue decline last spring forced lawmakers to cut $67 million out of existing budgets. And the governor was forced to follow up with an additional $250 million. While revenues are starting to show some moderate improvement, Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck says lawmakers will be debating the wisdom of even more cuts especially as a revenue shortfall for education looms. During a meeting before the legislature's Joint Appropriations Committee this week, Governor Matt Mead reiterated a stance that he's taken for several months. He does not favor any additional budget cuts out of the state's general fund. I do not think that we need to cut further. The budget is balanced. We haven't felt the full effect. And in fact, as we look historically to the 2009-2010 biennium, we see that not only are we relatively flat to that budget, but in fact we are reduced both in terms of dollars and in terms of positions. The Appropriations Committee has the final say when it comes to budget matters. During hearings this week, members expressed concern that the Department of Health undertook cuts that are impacting communities. Other agencies are also on the margins, and some lawmakers are also pondering ways to restore some of that money. Sheridan Senator Bruce Burns says despite the governor's wishes, there will be additional cuts and it won't be pleasant. You've got people uh, whose lives depend on, uh, on, on some of the money we're spending here. Uh, it, it, it's not pleasant at all in, in any sense. Incoming Speaker of the House Steve Harshman says the majority of cuts this year came from constitutionally mandated agencies like Health, the University of Wyoming, and others. Harshman says in the next round, they may need to look at programs that have been added on over the last several years. When you look at those things, you you have to pull back on some of those. Laramie Democrat Kathy Connolly is also a member of the JAC. She is distressed by the budget cut talk. She says some of the cuts that were made this year went way too far. We saw what I would consider some pretty draconian cuts in Department of Health programs that honestly kick issues down the road that are not supporting some of our most vulnerable populations. Connolly has similar concerns about some cuts in the Department of Family Services. She says cuts have reduced funding for a number of community programs. You know, our individuals with developmental disabilities, with behavioral health, suicide prevention, all of those kinds of programs are being cut. 
One of the reasons many lawmakers are discussing more cuts is because of education. With the coal industry on the decline, forecasters say that Wyoming is looking at a $700 million shortfall for education over the next two years. While K-12 education did see cuts this time, some lawmakers and the governor think that is a place to see even more savings. Conley says there is money available if the state changes its personal savings policy. Right now, what we do is we funnel money directly into coffee cans for savings. Maybe we need to, to kind of capture that money before it goes into savings and decide whether or not that's an appropriate thing to be doing at this point of time. You know, the reality is it is raining. While not committing to anything, Representative Harshman says options like that could be helpful in the short term as they wait for the economy to turn around. Orland Republican Michael Greer says when it comes to education, all ideas need to be on the table. There's no way we can cut ourselves out of the problem with the schools. There's no way that we can tax ourselves out of the problem with the schools. It's going to be a combination of that plus diverting the funds as, as you just asked. Incoming Speaker of the House Steve Harshman agrees that they need a thoughtful approach. Somewhere in the middle, reality will kind of surface and will break this up into smaller pieces and go to work on them. But he says whatever they do, they need to find a solution quickly because they don't have enough savings to balance the state budget four years from now. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. this week's issue of the online magazine Wildfile, reporter Angus Thurmer interviewed activists from Wyoming's tribes at the Dakota Access Pipeline protest. I talked to him about what it was like to arrive at the camp in extremely harsh winter conditions. I got there at night and uh, it was very cold and it was just before a big storm rolled in. And I was greeted at the gate by uh, a camp security who said, are you uh, returning or a newcomer? And I said, newcomer. And he said, go park. Uh, You can camp over there on the east side of the camp. And so I went there with my girlfriend who was helping me. And um, we spent um, an hour or so uh, digging out a spot uh, for a tent where we put our supplies and then getting the uh, pop-up camper ready for habitation. It was about an 80-acre camp that included uh, dozens and dozens of teepees, some yurts with uh, medical equipment, some uh, mess halls, uh, campers, trailers, lean-tos, and just a a mass of 5,000 people all there to um, protect the water and protest the construction of the pipeline. And what was the story that you felt like you were there to to try and cover? Well, I wanted to find some people from Wyoming who were joining uh, the tribes in their resistance to the pipeline. And I was able to connect with uh, Micah Lott, who's also um, goes by the name Big Wind. Uh, he was willing to do a an interview, and with that uh, off we went 
for uh, some 700 miles of driving into this uh, bitterly cold uh, camp and then began the uh, search for Mike a lot, which took uh, a couple of days, frankly. My cell phone uh, went dead immediately. There was uh, poor service. Micah's phone went dead also. The first day we spent uh, simply surviving, literally uh, holding the camper together. Uh, We were afraid it might be destroyed, so somebody always had to be at the camper in case something happened. And this took, just hanging on, took uh, the whole first day and half of the second. We were determined to feed ourselves and take care of ourselves, which we did. And so it wasn't until um, the end of the second day that I was able to go out and I walked through the whole camp and finally found an Arapaho elder in the uh, Rosebud camp. He drew a picture of the Arapaho flag. And uh, when I got up the next day, I was, uh, the third day, I was able to find this flag flying above uh, Mike, uh, Big Wind's uh, teepee. And I knocked on the door and uh, there he was. And so um, then what happened? You, you guys ended up started to talk about, in fact, his sister, um, who has also been up there. Is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned about McKenna Lot? He said, my sister has a story to tell also. And so, and we went into a geodesic dome where we could sit down and converse and I could take notes without having to wear gloves and stuff. And she told about how on Indigenous Peoples Day, she had been tying prayer bundles of tobacco onto some pipes that were going to be buried as part of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And she saw uh, an older woman. By the way, my Kenna lot uh, goes by the name Little Wind. And um, Big Wind is pretty big and Little Wind is a little bit small. And she saw uh, this older woman uh, walking away from the the pipes toward uh, a line of police and she told me that uh, she remembered her duty to uh, her elders, and so she joined arms uh, with this woman, and the police parted, and they made their way to a prayer teepee where uh, they began to pray. So uh, Little Wind told me that she was praying there for about 45 minutes when the police moved in, uh, told people they were under arrest, and she was had locked arms with people on uh, both sides of her, and the police pulled them apart. Uh, a little wind was dragged out of the teepee and handcuffed and taken to jail. Actually, they were uh, zip ties, and she was taken to uh, the lockup at uh, Mandan, North Dakota. She was released the next day. Uh, she spent the night in a crowded jail cell. Um, Her bond was set at $250. Uh, She pleaded not guilty to uh, engaging in a riot and another uh, trespassing charge. And she has a trial date set for uh, January. 
And so having talked to um, the folks that were up there from Wind River, um, what did they say in terms of, you know, what comes next for this protest? I know that um, the Standing Rock Sioux um, Councilman has kind of encouraged people to disperse. Did it seem like that was happening? Um, And and as far as the folks that you talked to, did they think that they were going to decide to leave? Big Wind and Little Wind told me that they are in the uh, fight against uh, Dakota Access Pipeline uh, to the end. They want to, as they say, kill the Black Snake, which is the pipeline. They believe that if it doesn't cross the Missouri at the location that's proposed today, the company will try to cross somewhere else. They're dedicated to uh, fighting the pipeline uh, wherever it goes. And they also uh, hope to bring back to uh, the Wind River Reservation some of the energy and uh, techniques, I guess, that they uh, might have learned at the camp that the water protectors, as they call themselves, have set up and uh, hope to uh, influence events in a positive manner in the future for the people that live on the Wind River Reservation. That was Wyophile reporter Angus Thurmer talking about his experience at the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. When we come back, we'll hear about efforts in the Wyoming legislature to reform parts of the criminal justice system. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. In the upcoming session, the Wyoming legislature will consider a joint Judiciary Committee bill that aims to bring about criminal justice reform. House Judiciary Committee Chairman David Miller, a Republican, and Representative Charles Pelkey, a Democrat, Join Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard to talk about the bill. Representative Miller says right now the bill is still under fiscal review. It's not out there on the web yet because, you know, the cost of this particular bill, I think it's going to be around $2.8 million. That's what the uh, Department of Corrections was uh, looking at. But it's in, uh, it's in that process right now. So it'll be out on the web here in probably a few days, I would guess. But it, it's an important bill to try to uh, lower our prison inmate population by several different factors. You know, not as strict sentencing, uh, letting the, uh, the prosecutors have a little more leadway, the judges have a little more leadway, and frankly, the parole board, when, when people are up for parole, giving them possibly more credit for time served, good time served, or if there's a minor infraction, not resetting all that back to, uh, to zero. But, uh, you know, I'm going to be off the uh, Judiciary Committee starting in this next session, and uh, Representative Pelkey is still going to be there, and he operates in this area, so uh, I'll, I'll see what his comments are. Well, you know, I mean, this is not the major criminal justice reform that I think a lot of people had hoped for, but it is significant. And, you know, I think it's important, uh, as, as Representative Miller correctly pointed out, there's probably going to be a fiscal impact of around $2.8 million or something. But you've got to compare that with the long-term savings. One of the things that we really need to do is reduce prison populations in Wyoming. We're at capacity uh, or near capacity in, at the medium security prison in Torrington. We're at capacity at the women's facility in Lusk. And we're talking about investing 
80 to $100 million in, in simply repairing uh, bad construction work and bad geological assessments uh, at the prison in Rollins. It costs a lot of money to lock people up. And some of those people, frankly, don't need to be locked up. They need treatment. They need um, job training. They need probation and strict supervision, perhaps. But we can do that a lot more cheaply than we can locking people up in prison. And I think that's the long-term goal of this and perhaps future bills. Representative Pelkey, was that the impetus for this bill? I, you know, cost savings is certainly high on the list, but I think it's it's also fair to say that, you know, we're, we're taking a more modern approach to, to particularly nonviolent crimes that, you know, people don't pose a threat to society, maybe not necessarily have to be locked up and uh, and we can address those problems in in other ways. Uh, you know, substance abuse treatment is probably high on that list. Virtually every criminal case that I come across, I'd say 90 some percent of them involve some form of substance abuse. You know, it's I think it's key for us to to focus on on the success rates on those non-prison programs, uh, drug courts for example, that have a much lower recidivism rate than um, than simply uh, folks who get sent off to the penitentiary. One of the problems they have, you know, coming out of the penitentiary, they don't have job opportunities necessarily. Some of them are, most of them are saddled with a felony, making employment difficult, puts a great deal of economic pressure on them. And we see people relapsing into the patterns of behavior that put them there in the first place, largely because they have few other options. And I think when we address the underlying substance abuse issues and we we provide out-of-prison opportunities for people with supervision, I think our long-term costs are going to go down. Now, with this bill, is it only addressing sentencing reform or is there anything in there for decriminalization of drugs like marijuana? It's mostly sentencing reform as far as, you know, decriminalizing some, some of the drug issues, we really haven't addressed that in any great detail in this bill. No, I think one of the things that this bill does accomplish is um, it provides a little bit more latitude for those people who are out on probation and may have a, a violation that doesn't rise to the level of requiring somebody to be sent to prison. Um, you know, I mean, there are some judges who take a strict view and say, look, you know, you're given an opportunity to be on probation. And if you slip up once, you're going to prison. Well, you know, if a guy has a drink and he has an underlying substance abuse problem, it doesn't really do us a lot of good to send that person to prison. If we can address the underlying substance issues outside of prison, at a much lower cost to the, to the people of Wyoming. Long term, you know, there is a movement afoot among some legislators uh, to reduce the criminal penalties for some of those nonviolent offenses, particularly drug offenses and more specifically marijuana. I mean, I don't think anybody is really going out to decriminalize methamphetamine, which has some serious consequences in the community. Governor Matt Mead said this week that he potentially wanted to tweak some things in this bill. Representative Miller has the governor's office been in contact or, or said anything about specific changes to this bill? Uh, well, we, we have talked with the governor about this, but he hasn't mentioned any specific changes. Uh, uh, concerning corrections, our, our bigger discussions with the governor's office has been on the problems with the Rollins prison, the construction problems, whether we fix uh, the prison where it's at with tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, or if we look at trying to relocate the prison 
somewhere north of Rollins on much more stable ground. It's just uh, dollar-wise, that's a big issue for the state to focus on right now. And the way I look at the criminal justice and and the prison issues, I I don't want to personally, in these these lean times we're facing, I'd rather be a little bit tougher on the prison population than we do on the K-12 education population. Representative Pelkey, do you have anything to add? Um, you know, we have uh, we are one of those states that still spends more money on education than it does prisons, and I certainly never want to see us uh, lapse in, in, into the uh, into that category. Representative Miller, has this bill seen consensus across the aisle across political parties? Oh, I believe so. I think uh, Representative Pelkey and, and myself are on the same page when it comes to uh, criminal justice. Uh, we think maybe some prosecutors on the nonviolent criminal acts are maybe uh, a little bit too aggressive. But uh, where you have a real criminal, where it is a violent case, uh, throw the book at them. You know, we don't want to put people in prison. But if we have to, we have to. And, and right now, I think there's a, some room in there to readjust our, our sentencing and uh, quit the growth of our prison population. Representative Miller, what is next for criminal justice reform? Well, I would think the, uh, the the marijuana issue is something that's still wide open. We did not come to a consensus on changing the current statute, which uh, uh, calls uh, marijuana in plant form, you know, greater than three ounces is a felony, under three ounces is a misdemeanor, and it doesn't address the edible issue. So right now, certain counties, the county prosecutors, that if you come from Colorado with a a 3.1 ounce brownie, you could be uh, prosecuted as a felon. I know Representative Pelkey doesn't like that, and I don't like that. Yeah, again, we're in agreement on that. You know, I I use the term nonviolent offenses quite frequently. I, I think, you know, we've got to really separate out those those defendants who who really warrant prison time versus those who don't necessarily pose a risk to society if they weren't locked up. Uh, certainly, I you know I'm not in favor of uh, you know letting you know reducing sentences for somebody who's convicted of a violent assault or or, or murder. But um, when a crime doesn't involve violence and not putting someone in prison doesn't necessarily pose a risk to society. I think we need to look at those alternatives. And so I think criminal justice reform, obviously, I'd like an immediate solution and completely rewrite the criminal code, but we're not going to do that. It's going to be a slow and methodical and thoughtful process. And there is consensus across the aisle. I mean, if you put Representative Miller and put me on a political spectrum, we'd be at complete opposite ends. But surprisingly, we, we end up agreeing on a lot of fundamental issues like this. Representative Miller, Representative Pelkey, thank you both so much for speaking with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thank you. When we return, we'll hear about how the northern Arapaho are trying to make sure they don't get left out of the grizzly bear delisting. This is Open Spaces.
This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Last week, the Northern Arapaho Tribe issued a statement expressing frustration about being left out of a meeting on removing the grizzly bear from the endangered species list. The disagreement has left some people wondering if grizzly delisting could be the Dakota Access Pipeline of Wyoming, in which local tribes assert themselves as sovereign nations. Well, I mean, Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports. Yufna Soldierwolf is the director of the Northern Arapaho Tribal Historic Preservation Office, which might make you wonder, what's so historic about grizzly bears? The bear is sacred to us. You know, many animals are sacred to us. She says that connection to the species through long-standing customs and oral histories now has an official term, traditional ecological knowledge. Soldier Wolf says last year the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service adopted a policy requiring it to seek out such tribal knowledge before making big decisions like delisting culturally significant species. There should be something there saying that, well, hold on here. What do the tribes think? You know, what are their views and tribal perspective on the bears? Um, we haven't even been asked that. You're the first one to have asked me that. And Soldier Wolf says the interagency Grizzly Bear Committee even publicly announced the tribe supported the delisting. I'm actually not even being emailed or being told when the meetings are happening. Soldier Wolf says the same thing happened to the Standing Rock Sioux. They're thinking that, oh, we can override the tribes and what they have to say is not important. But in fact, what the tribes have to say is important because by law, they must be treated as sovereign nations. That's according to Torivio Fodder, manager of the Indigenous Governance Program at the Native Nations Institute in Arizona. He says some of the earliest Supreme Court rulings gave tribes a special status. The legal term is sui generis, meaning unlike anything else. They're unique entities in that their authority to govern predates the United States Constitution. Fodder says going forward, states will need to get used to reaching out to tribes, especially when it comes to energy development. He says the industry adheres to strict permitting policies that require tribal consultation, but it falls on tribes to stay involved. And Fodder says that's where the Standing Rock Sioux took a wrong turn. The tribes were approached about consultation. And rather than engaging the process, they voiced their (laughs) vociferous disagreement and sent a letter to the effect saying, we don't recognize the authority. Fodder says by not engaging in the process, the Sioux weren't at the table when the decision to build a pipeline was made. He says with grizzly delisting, the northern Arapaho haven't made that mistake. Rather than, you know, sending a letter, you know, just stating their opposition to it, to actually connect with the Department of the Interior and say, hey, why weren't we included in this conversation? I think that's key. That's sovereignty in action. The good news for tribes in Wyoming is that the state has been listening better than they have in the past. Leslie Shakespeare is the former Eastern Shoshone tribal liaison for Governor Matt Mead. He says he felt welcome at that table. Shakespeare says he worked closely with the state to reintroduce wild bison on the reservation and to negotiate a compromise when the state briefly legalized historical horse racing machines, which competed with the tribe's casinos. And he says his tribe has stayed in the loop on energy development. He thinks the Standing Rock Sioux weren't so lucky. But there's a difference between being consulted and your viewpoint not being taken into consideration when decisions are made. So I think particularly in our tribe's case, they're, they're notified of every, every aspect of these different things that are happening. Senator Kale Case agrees. 
He's the chairman of the Tribal Relations Committee and says Wyoming has an unusually cooperative relationship with its tribes compared to other states. We are practically the only state that funds schools on the reservation, for example. That's extraordinary. And what's more, says Case, it's one of the only states to pay for tribal family services and water systems. But he admits his committee might have dropped the ball on grisly delisting. I think if we would have done a better job in the Tribal Relations Committee and actually saw that coming, we could have promoted uh, meetings in advance of that. And um, we, we missed that. But Preservation Director Yufna Soldierwolf says the onus also falls on the tribes to assert themselves. There's a lot of laws that are made, but they're the ones that are not following them. Um, And it's up to the tribes to shift that burden and make them and hold them accountable. Soldier Wolf says she's still waiting to hear back about how her tribe can get involved in the grizzly bear decision. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. With Republicans preparing to control the House, Senate, and White House for the first time in a decade, Wyoming Republicans are moving up the ranks and will wield significant power in the upcoming Congress. Washington correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story. President-elect Donald Trump is a businessman who promised to shake up the federal bureaucracy. To do that, he'll need allies on Capitol Hill, and he's got one in senior Senator Mike Enzi. As chairman of the Budget Committee, Enzi is putting his training as an accountant into action. One of the first proposals he's hoping to get through is to move Congress from doing an annual budget to doing biennial budgeting, like they do in the state legislature. They're going to have to get a lot closer to being like Wyoming if we're going to save this country. And biennial budgeting is one way to do that. Enzi is also hoping that under unified Republican control, Congress can enact broader reforms when it comes to the nation's budget. One of my most frustrating things is the president's budget and the Budget Committee's budget and the Spending Committee's budget are all different formats. And it appears to be intentional so that you can't follow the dollars. And we've got to change that so that people can actually do oversight. Enzi also wants to streamline the congressional committees that oversee the executive branch because he argues Congress has allowed agencies to duplicate programs unnecessarily. Housing, for instance, we've got 140 housing programs. How can you have 140 housing programs? Worse yet, they're administered by 20 different agencies. So there's nobody really in charge. Nobody sets the goals. So we don't know if we're really accomplishing anything with the dollars that we're spending. Enzi believes President-elect Trump will be receptive to his calls for reform, in part because Enzi's former staffers are now working with the incoming administration. When Trump was running, he called me and asked if I had a good budget person. And I was the budget chairman. Of course I did. So I released my best budget person. He got a hold of me later to find out if I had a good tax person. I released a tax person to him, and he listened to them, and I heard some of my words coming back through his speech, the good words. Wyoming's junior senator, John Barrasso, is moving up the ranks on a committee that's vital to the state, the Environment and Public Works Committee. The committee has an expansive portfolio that touches everything from bridges to wildlife and has a big energy portfolio. The issues that the committee is under, under its control are, are significant, and, but they're, th- they're things that Donald Trump has talked about. Democrats and environmentalists fear that Barrasso will enable Trump to unwind the efforts President Obama took to combat climate change. 
Virginia Democrat Don Byer says he's worried about what he's hearing from Republicans on the Hill, but also what's coming out of Trump Tower. Oh, very much so. Absolutely. Especially what the, the rumors that are out there is that his transition team has asked him to reverse everything Obama's done by executive order on the first day. That would be terrible for the climate. Yeah, it's we really are going to have to be depending on states and local governments and the rest of the world. Because just because the U.S. retreats from the Paris Accords doesn't mean all the other nations of the world will. Brasso says he's going to try to balance the concerns of the environmental community with the oil and gas interests he represents. Making it easier to use American energy in a way that helps our economy and do it in ways that do to, uh, to protect, make sure we continue with clean air and clean water. I mean, that's what everyone wants. We want to do it in ways, though, that don't hurt the economy. One of the first tasks for Barrasso in the new year will be to approve Trump's pick to run the Environmental Protection Agency. Scott Pruitt, who sued the agency when he was Attorney General of Oklahoma. Barrasso says he hopes to get Pruitt confirmed swiftly. Because the EPW will be the one that confirms that. I want to get an administrator on the ground quickly. Liz Cheney will also be joining Barrasso and Enzi in the U.S. House of Representatives, where she's hoping to serve on committees that deal with Wyoming's energy and other natural resources. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Wyoming Cowboys football team is preparing for its first bowl appearance in five years when it faces an old foe in Brigham Young. The two teams have not played each other since 2010 when BYU decided to leave the Mountain West Conference. Over the years, BYU has dominated the rivalry, and if the Cowboys win, it'll be the first victory over the Cougars since 2003. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that according to the players and coaches, BYU has another outstanding team. The first thing that caught Wyoming football coach Craig Bowles' attention is how strong and athletic BYU is. The Cougars will likely be playing backup quarterback Tanner Mangum after starter Taysom Hill was injured at the end of the season. But Bowles notes that Mangum is a former starter who throws very well. UW linebacker Lucas Waka is also impressed. You know, he can throw the ball. They throw the ball very well. And uh, they got a big running back that can run over people and runs hard. And, uh... You know, big offensive line, physical, physical guys, and uh, you know they—they're definitely older and mature than uh, people, people that we have on our team. But uh, I also think that uh, we got guys that are going to go out there and compete. While BYU has always been famous for its offense, it's the defense that's gotten the Cowboys' attention. Bull says they are impressive. Big, strong, imposing front, and they make you earn it. And uh, so when you have a physical, disciplined team. And that's always a challenge, and that's going to be a challenge for us as far as moving the football. Wyoming All-American center Chase Rullier agrees. They're strong and fast and athletic up front, both at the linebacker and defensive line positions, um, which it's, it, those are tough defenses to go against. Rullier says the key for Wyoming is to get its running game going. 
but he is confident they can find a way to move the ball. For most of the Cowboys, this is an exciting time to finally get to play in a bowl game. Rullier says the team has come a long way in a short time. It's been tough as a senior, fifth-year senior, having the last four seasons that we've had. Um, but, you know, to be able to come out this season and have the year that we've had, it's been very exciting, and I think we're all very proud of it. Running back Brian Hill can't wait to get on the field. Super excited, man. It's been a real goal coming into this offseason, you know. One of our goals was to get to the bowl game, and we did that pretty early in the year. And now that it's finally here, you know, the excitement is just bubbling over. I can't wait to get to San Diego and experience it. Now, in the past, Wyoming players would be expressing their excitement over facing BYU, but none of these players have a good understanding of what this rivalry has meant. Lucas Waka says some people, though, have tried to educate him. Teachers, older teachers, they've been talking to me about uh, BYU versus Wyoming rivalry and how it's how huge it is uh, to this state and how much uh, how, ma- how many games they've had in the past uh, that's been by just points how much they don't di- how much they don't like uh, BYU is uh, is definitely uh, they're making the point. Rullier says while this crop of players may not understand the rivalry, he quickly adds that this team is filled with big-time players who thrive on big-time games. He predicts that the team will do the state proud. Kickoff is Wednesday night at 7, and the game will be televised by ESPN. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. We'll wrap up the show with author Brad Watson and a tale of an eerie painting. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. UW creative writing professor Brad Watson is out with a new novel called Miss Jane. The book was long listed for this year's National Book Award. As he tells Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Jones, Miss Jane is about a woman living in rural Mississippi in the early 1900s with a rare congenital disorder that renders her incontinent and unable to reproduce. Miss Jane is a character who was inspired by your great aunt. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. What about your great aunt was intriguing to you? That she had a secret. She visited my grandmother's house on Sunday when we were all gathered there, and she was really old. I was really young, so she looked really old. And she was wearing all black, and she was, seemed frail, and she was helped from the car into the house. And someone said, that's Aunt Jane. And... The idea was, so something is wrong with her, but we didn't know what. 
And then I saw a photograph of her when she was a teenager or a young woman that to me looked like she was um, flirting with whoever took the picture. And I asked my mom, I didn't know who it was. I said, who's that? She said, it's Aunt Jane. And I said, looks like she's flirting with the photographer. And that's when my mom told me that she was popular with the boys and she used to go to dances in the community up where she grew up. I said, how did she manage that, you know, if she had this problem with incontinence? She said, I don't know. I got to thinking about how she might have pulled that off. And also, I got to thinking about her as someone who wanted a normal, so to speak, life, you know, who liked boys, who wished she could have had a, a conventional romantic life. And if she had... um sort of made a foray into that when she was a teenager at these dances, then at some point I suppose she would have had to pull back and to face the fact that there was nothing apparently to do about correcting her condition, and so that suggested potential heartbreak. You've said this is the hardest book you've ever written. Why is that? It was. First of all, I mean, you know, I, I've never written a character, I think, at least in depth, who was quite so different, so far removed from my own experience, you know. I also realized that I could not write her story or imagine her story if I didn't figure out a plausible medical condition for her, because that would have defined so much uh, of her daily life, as well as the arc of her entire life. So I had to figure out um, what made sense in terms of the story, and I wanted that to sort of match something that made sense for my aunt as well. It turns out that she was a much bigger mystery than I thought, and her secret was deeper. It was just a hard world to understand. It seems as though another challenge for you would be that this is based on a real person, and how do you separate a real person's lived experience and your responsibility to that from a fictional woman. Yeah, you know, that actually, I think that was a psychological impediment. I had to let go of what I didn't know about my aunt in order to make up, you know, to imagine what I could about the person in the book. Jane, her affliction is, seems to biologically affect only females, right? This condition, as I understand it from my my reading uh happens only in females but it also seems as though in her particular time and place it's something that would i don't know perhaps affect a woman in a very different way than it might affect a man and i wondered how very different this book would be if something like that happened to a man if jane were a man yeah i think it would have been hard on anyone but you know, it was a lot more, um, I think, uh, acceptable or even common, maybe, for men not to marry. You know, that's a, probably not a, a good thing for a woman who did not have a lot of ways in which to, to make a living. There's a bunch of themes in this novel. You explored solitude and the trappings of sex without the actual physical act and how reproduction forms or doesn't form gender. And I wondered, what was the most interesting for you to explore? What were you most interested in of all of these things that the book is exploring? I was very interested in how she might deal with isolation, physical and social and psychological, really, how she would find a way to be 
content, if possible, which I think she does in the book. I was interested in the fact that this condition involves um, a woman who basically has her entire female anatomy, urogenital makeup, and yet there is no access to it. So you are a fully sexual person with no access to the conventional expression of that sexuality. It feels to me like this novel falls into a very Southern literary tradition. Do you, do you feel that way? And what kind of literary t- traditions influenced you in writing it? The rural novel, um, but I don't see that as being entirely Southern. More than being influenced, I think, by some sort of uh, Southern tradition, uh, some self-consciously working in a Southern tradition. I was working more in, in the tradition of novels about people whose lives are set apart in ways beyond their control uh, from the rest of other, uh, ever, from the rest of society, and have to find ways to carve out uh, their own way of living a dignified life. That was author Brad Watson speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Jones. His new novel is Miss Jane. Last year, the Arizona Final Salute Foundation asked University of Wyoming student Cassidy Newkirk to paint the sinking of the USS Arizona during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Prints of the painting would help raise money to fly the six remaining survivors of the Arizona to Hawaii to be honored at the 75th anniversary ceremony. But as soon as she began the work, Newkirk says strange things started happening. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports. When Cassidy Newkirk was commissioned to paint the sinking of the USS Arizona, she was given certain parameters. The parameters I was given was to commemorate the ones fallen, the ones entombed, the ones survived, the ship, um, and the future from the perspective of a sailor on the ship after it had been hit and was sinking. But historical photographs from the perspective of sailors on board don't exist, so she created 3,000 of her own reference photos. The parameters I was given was to commemorate the ones fallen, the ones entombed, the ones survived, the ship, um, and the future from the perspective of a sailor on the ship after it had been hit and was sinking. First, Newkirk had her dad and boyfriend build a model of the Arizona so she could cut it right down the middle and see the superstructure. She also got her hands on every book she could find about the ship and sought out survivor stories. Then she asked her longtime friend, Jake Berg, to model every man aboard the ship, including burn victims. I put Jake through a lot. I don't think he understood when he signed up how much stuff I was going to put him through. (laughs) Their first photo shoot involved six different authentic World War II uniforms, and Jake Berg couldn't believe the uniforms fit him. 
because they didn't look like they were going to fit. <laughs> he was a little bit shorter than I was or smaller than I was, but just seemed to fit the way they needed to. I went and put music on and I turned around and Jake had them on and I was like, how did you get those on? And he was like, they kind of just get on me. I don't want to talk about it. Let's just do pictures because weird stuff happened to us all the time. Weird stuff, like eerie photos. Newkirk says Berg has very distinct features, but in the photos, those features would sometimes vanish. In every picture you take of yourself, it should be yourself, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> in every picture, it was Jake, but they didn't look like Jake. And he'd go to like a 17-year-old boy. And then he'd look like maybe 35 and like high up. And he'd look more muscular and he'd look more skinny and he'd look like different people and different complexions and different everything. The burn victim photos required special effects makeup, something Newkirk had never done before. She knew what raw meat looked like from her time as a ranch kid, but that was her only knowledge. Never seen a burn unit. Um, I've never seen a burn victim. So Newkirk found a simple recipe on the internet, and on the day of the shoot, it took nine hours to get Berg into the special effects makeup. So I did full body, like legs, arms, chest, back, face, head, everything. I was able to do it almost exactly like it would have been. So obviously I wasn't doing it. There's somebody helping me. The nine hours of makeup were followed by a five-hour-long photo shoot. And that's when Newkirk says things got really weird. The energy in the room would be so intense that our studio lights would quit working. So like they'd just start flickering or they'd shut off. Then you'd start smelling like smoke and burning oil and gasoline and ocean and just like, and then it'd just all go away and everything be normal. Jake Berg says the experience caught him off guard. Most definitely braised the hair on the back of my neck that wasn't covered in makeup. Newkirk says the painting itself came more easily than she expected. To go from one way of painting my whole life and then to just automatically be able to do stuff I've never been able to do before was like a trigger to me that I wasn't the one doing it. Newkirk says she knows people might not believe her. Because I think it must be hard, you know, if somebody tells you there's spirits from the Arizona helping me with this. But Newkirk says if you're skeptical, you should just touch the painting. I don't know. I don't know if anybody else can feel this. Certain people can, and I don't know why. But if you put your hands on it, um, it like vibrates almost, like you can feel the energy in it. The painting will remain in Hawaii at the USS Arizona Memorial, where Newkirk says it belongs. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our podcast. You can listen to it on iTunes as well. If you get the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. And a rater is our web editor. All of our reporters are on Twitter, and we'd love it if you'd like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. This is our last Open Spaces for 2016. You can join us for a year review show on December 30th. Hey, have a happy new year, and we'll see you in 2017. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.